Our scripture passage today is from the Revelation of John, chapter 16, verses 1 to 9, and then verses 17 to 21. Before we read this, let us pause for a moment in prayer. Good and heavenly Father, we thank you for your revealed word that you have given to us. We thank you in particular today for this book that we have called Revelation. We thank you, Lord, that you have revealed these mysteries to us and spoken to us your word and your will. And today, Lord, you have spoken to us words of prophecy, of things to come, Lord, of the future that you have declared. But Father, we can understand none of these things nor the, the proper way to even know this without the same spirit that inspired these words to inspire us today. So Father, I pray that you would send and breathe that spirit upon our hearts and our minds that as we hear and as we read, that we would understand. Father, bless this holy reading of your holy word and may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. After we read this, there will be a brief moment of silent meditation. This is the revelation of John chapter 16, verses 1 to 9 and verses 17 to 21. Listen now to the word of the Lord. Then I heard a loud voice from the temple telling the seven angels, Go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. So the first angel went and poured out his bowl on the earth. And harmful and painful sores came upon the people who bore the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. The second angel poured out his bowl into the sea, and it became like the blood of a corpse, and every living thing died that was in the sea. The third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of water, and they became blood. And I heard the angel in charge of the water say, Just are you, Holy One. Who is and who was, for you brought these judgments. For they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. And I heard the altar saying, Yes, Lord God the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. The fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, and it was allowed to scorch people with fire. They were scorched by their fierce heat, and they cursed the name of God who had power over these plagues. They did not repent and give Him glory. The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne, saying, It is done. There were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a great earthquake such as there has never been since man was on the earth. So great was that earthquake. The great city was split into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell, and God remembered Babylon the great to make her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath. And every island fled away, and no mountains were to be found, and great hailstones, about 100 pounds each, fell from heaven on people, and they cursed God for the plague of the hail, because the plague was so severe." Thank you. 
This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. If you've ever spoken with an unbeliever and, and tried to talk to them about your faith and, and, and tried to explain his faith to maybe someone who's either an unbeliever or maybe someone who's sitting on the fence a little bit and, and has some questions, you may get to a point, or at least I usually do, where you have to answer some awkward questions about the wrath of God. It's the easy part when you, when you get to talk about God's love. God loves you. God desires the salvation of everyone. He's got kindness. He's got mercy. He loves all of his children. He wants to redeem the earth. But then you get to a point where if somebody does enough digging, or if you do enough digging, you find something that is very different from kindness and love and generosity and gentleness. And you experience another side of God, which some will call is not very good and loving at all. It is a, a side that is full of wrath, a side full of punishment. And so this is a, can be a stumbling block for a lot of new believers. It can be one for those that are, again, sitting on the fence, those questioning the faith. It can even be a stumbling block for some lifelong believers when they ask these questions about this good and loving God, and yet we see an example like what we read today of the great wrath and anger of God being poured out upon the world. And in fact, this difficulty becomes so great it absolutely and 100% keeps people away from the faith, or, or at least that is what they claim. Um, there was the, uh, one of the famous philosophers and, and renowned atheists, uh, Bertrand Russell. He wrote a book called Why I Am Not a Christian. And it was a, uh, it's been in print for about 80 years. You can probably find it in any, any bookstore today. And, and one of the main reasons he gives for why he is not a Christian is because he says he cannot believe and worship a God that shows such wrath and anger and punishment. He says he cannot reconcile it and he refuses to believe in a God that would show wrath upon the people of the world. And I'll give you, I mean, it is hard to explain, I'll have to admit. It is hard to try to reconcile. And, and if you've ever been in that debate and you've tried to explain how God is loving, yet we have these examples of His wrath as well, sometimes you can just look silly. And sometimes I've felt silly. And I almost want to say, look, just, no, no, He really is loving. Just, just focus on the love. Don't worry about this wrathful part. Just, just let's focus on the love and the generosity and the grace of God, but... If you ever debated someone like that, they'll get you in this little, they'll have this little gotcha moment. Or how can he be so loving like you claim and at the same time be so angry? In fact, he doesn't, doesn't sound like he's really loving at all. Now, this part of Revelation that we, that we read today deals heavily in the anger and the wrath and the judgment and the punishment of God. And if you focus a lot on, on the New Testament, there are ways that you can, I wouldn't say ignore the wrath of God, but just pass over and focus on a lot of other parts because there's so much, especially in the New Testament, that focuses on the love and grace of God. But when you read the book of Revelation, it's kind of hard to avoid. The wrath of God is a huge theme in Revelation. And you could even say that the major theme or one of the major themes of Revelation is God executing his judgment and his wrath upon the world. 
And nowhere does it show up as much as it does in this section, in chapter 16 in Revelation, where we call it the seven bowls of God's anger. Now, you might have noticed that the number seven appears quite frequently in this book. Over and over again, it's the number of, of divine completeness. And we've had seven seals that God broke as revealing his mysteries and his plans through the course of history. We've had the seven trumpets announcing the arrival of the kingdom of God in its fullness. And now we get to the point where he's going to be unleashing what they call the seven bowls of God's wrath. And seven angels are given these bowls. And this is just after the kingdom of the beast has been flourishing on the earth. And uh, if y'all remember, if you don't know, you can watch the, the, the one from the last two weeks where we talked about this antichrist, this, an, this, this figure is going to be a demanding obedience and worship from the world is going to rise up reign over most of the world. He's going to force people to put marks on their, on their wrists and on their forehead to show loyalty to this Antichrist. He's going to set him up as a, himself up as a Christ-like figure. That everything that you can rely on for Christ, you have got to give to me. And he persecutes the church and the people of God. But God has set a limit on the time that the beast can reign. Three and a half years. And he set the limit on that. And after that limit, this is the point where we come today in Revelation in our reading. Where this time is up for the reign of the Antichrist. And God responds by turning over his bowls of wrath. And these are all kinds of plagues. You can see sores breaking out on people. The sea turning like blood. Great earthquakes. Hailstones. Fire coming down from the sun. And scorching the people that have the mark of the beast upon them now when we look at god's anger towards the antichrist we can think it's fairly justified not fairly justified it is justified this guy's evil he's done some awful things he's persecuted the church he's committed every evil and atrocity that you can imagine or think of it's going to be the darkest day that the earth is ever going to see i mean it's like killing hitler okay we we get it that was justified but what about the people what about all those people who were deceived? Why is God executing so much wrath towards them? Now every time we, or so many times rather, when we're faced with the question of the wrath of God, we try so hard to explain it away that we miss an opportunity to make a really good point. We try so hard to justify and to show that God is not, in fact, wrathful. Instead of accepting the fact that, yes, sometimes God is wrathful. And that we miss a greater point that God is making towards us. Let me, this is what it says in, chat, in verse 5. I heard the angel in charge of the waters say, Just are you, Holy One, who is and who was, for you brought these judgments. For they, those that are being, those that are being, um, uh, uh, punished they have shed the blood of saints and prophets and you have given them blood to drink it is what they deserve and i heard the altar saying yes lord god the almighty true and just are your judgments why is god so wrathful because it is just and right that he is some people would ask, how can such a God, a good and loving God, display such anger? In Revelation, it tells us, how can he not display his anger? Let me explain what I mean. 
Have y'all ever heard of a group of people called Sovereign Citizens? Have y'all heard of that movement? We don't have any here today, do we? I just, just want to make sure. And I might, I might mis mischaracterize the Sovereign Citizen movement, but I think I've got a pretty good handle on it. A sovereign citizen is somebody who believes that the authority of the U.S. government does not apply to them. That's in a nutshell. They, they have a, an elaborate conspiracy attached to it, but, but at the end, what they've done, or at least they think they've done, is legally liberated themselves from the laws and the customs of the United States of America. So they live here in America. They uh, work sometimes in America. They enjoy the infrastructure and the protection that America offers, but they do not believe that they are beholden to any of America's laws, to any of its policies. They don't have to pay taxes. And they essentially consider themselves independent people. And they refuse to recognize the authority of the U.S. government, especially as it concerns themselves. Now you can imagine that this can cause some problems, especially at tax time. Um, sovereign citizens might consider themselves free from paying taxes, but the Internal Revenue Service does not consider anybody free from paying their taxes. So a lot of times they get into conflict with the Internal Revenue Service when it comes time to pay their taxes. And sometimes it can actually get quite violent when, when, uh, when they'll get pulled over by the police. And these sovereign citizens will argue with the police that their authority does not cover them, that they are, in fact, independent and sovereign citizens. And at times, it has actually become violent. And their police officers have lost their lives in some bloody conflicts with these uh, sovereign citizens. Well, the point, though, I'm trying to make is we do not allow, allow people to act that way. Just because you declare yourself free from the authority of the U.S. government, the U.S. government has not declared you free from their authority. And we still expect all citizens, sovereign or not, to obey the laws of our nation. And if you decide not to obey the laws, well, we have a word for that. It's called being a criminal. And a criminal should expect a punishment. We do not allow people to establish breakaway governments. Um, it's like this, this uh, two summers ago when group wanted to establish their autonomous zone in Seattle. I mean, as much as the mayor wanted to let it go for as long as possible, it was not going to go on. Because that was a group of people declaring an independence from the United States. It was an act of rebellion. And eventually would have been treated as an act of rebellion. So what I'm saying is we expect our government and our laws to punish criminals and rebels. It's reasonable. It's just. It's actually a good idea to do that. As if we can't have a nation that's overrun with uh, these small breakaway factions and governments and full of a criminal and rebellious element. You know what the result is? It's anarchy. It's chaos. And even though some people might think it's a good idea to, to have our law and order to be subsumed by anarchy and chaos, it doesn't take long for you to change your mind. As soon as your home is threatened, as soon as your livelihood, as soon as your life or the life of someone you love is threatened, you realize, well, maybe we need these laws after all. There are a lot of cities that wanted to uh, defund the police. And most of them, I've heard, have had a major change of heart. Not surprisingly, 
they found that defunding the police was, in fact, not a good idea. And a lot of them have actually increased the funding of their police departments. Now, I, I say all this to point out that a disobedience to sovereign authority is rebellion. The disobedience to the laws of our nation is criminal and rebellion. And the same concept applies to God, but even more so. Unbelief is rebellion against God. I want to tell you that again because I want that to hit home. Unbelief is rebellion against God. Now, we like to treat unbelief as, as just a matter of opinion. As just, yeah, you can believe or not, or yeah, you know, it's just, this is just the way I think. Like, I think vitamins are effective or not effective, or I think Chevy makes a better automobile than Ford, or vice versa. That this, this is a choice just to believe in, it's just a preference. But it's not that at all. Belief or unbelief is not just a choice. It is your choice, it is your preference, it can be that, but it's so much more than that. To be in a state of unbelief is to be in a state of rebellion against God. Because you are refusing to acknowledge the authority of God. You are refusing to acknowledge the kingship of the true and proper king. You are in a state of rebellion against God. And just like a refusal to obey the laws of our nation is a criminal act, the refusal to obey the laws of God is a criminal act against the King of kings and the Lord of lords. So just as it is right and just for a secular nation and government to punish rebels and criminals, it is right and just for God to be wrathful towards a rebellious and criminal people. Now, I know this is hard to take. I know it is a lot because we don't think of unbelief as rebellion. And, and when I say this, I immediately think of people that I know, people that are dear to me, that are in a state of unbelief. And, and you might know somebody that, that's close to you, somebody you love that is in a state of unbelief, and you want to think, well, they're, they're, not, they're not bad people, and, and they're not. I have people that I love very much that are in a state of unbelief, and I, and I hate it. And sometimes it just gives me this awful feeling in the pit of my stomach. And I'm not saying this to make you feel scared or feel bad. But I feel like I need to impress the seriousness of what is happening. That unbelief is rebellion. The disobedience of God is a criminal act. And in this part of Revelation, we have seen this kingdom of the beast bring the whole world into a state of rebellion. And he has set up this, this hostile state that claims all of Jesus Christ as authority and has forced everyone in the world to take a mark. And in taking that mark become as guilty as the beast is. And as bad as rebellion and criminal activity is in this world of secular authorities, it's so much worse when it's against God. When, when, if we were to rebel against this country, we, we're rebelling against a flawed human authority. As good as our nation is, it is a flawed human authority. But to rebel against God is to rebel against a perfect heavenly authority. If we decide to break the laws of man, we're breaking laws that are made by human beings. And sometimes, well, I mean, we have a lot of silly laws. 
break God's laws. Or to break the laws, well, of God. So when God executes wrath upon the world, he's showing his wrath to a world that has repeatedly, has systematically, and emphatically rejected him as Lord. And has rejected Christ as King. When God shows his wrath upon the world, it is in a world that embraces injustice, a world that embraces hatred and greed and violence, that loves lust and envy. And when Christ came to save this world, they killed him. And when Christ rose and offered his blood as an atonement, they rejected him. And when Christ sent his saints and evangelists to preach grace to the world, they persecuted and killed them. This is a world in rebellion against God that refuses to acknowledge him as king, to refuse his laws, refuse his ways. They also refuse his grace. To me, that's the greatest crime of all. I mean, to disobey God is criminal, to reject him is rebellion, to persecute the church is an act of war. But to reject grace, to refuse forgiveness, to be in that state of rebelling and having the king himself come to you and want to reconcile and to pay the price for that reconciliation, and you reject that too? What's even the word for that? We hear that, we have to echo what Revelation said, just and righteous are all of your judgments. Now, I want to say something that might surprise you, though. There is good news in this. There's good news in everything that God does, and there is good news in this today. You see, when we realize how serious our crimes are against God, that's when we realize for the first time how amazing is His grace. When we realize the enormity of our crimes against God, then we get to realize the enormity of God's grace and love towards us. We live in a world in rebellion now. God doesn't destroy it. We live in a world full of criminals against God, but God doesn't purge and smash and smite them. And I want to remind you of something that, that maybe you've forgotten, and I forget sometimes. I used to be a rebel. I used to be a rebel against God. You used to be rebels against God. He didn't smite me. He did something even more surprising than that. He, he reached out to me. He sent people to preach his love and forgiveness to a rebel and sinner like me. And daily I am a criminal against God. I mean, I know exactly how Paul feels. You're looking at the chief of all sinners. Yet daily he shows me patience. Daily he shows me tolerance. Daily he shows me his forgiveness over and over. Forgiving me for rebellion and disobedience. It's when we were in a state of rebellion and war against God that he sent his son to die for our sakes. Every bit of God's wrath is justified. 
which is why only the Son of God could appease it. I couldn't appease it. I was already broken. I was already unworthy. I was already in a state of rebellion against God. Christ was the only one who was worthy. And he appeased it. And he took every bit of God's anger. He took every bit of God's punishment and put it upon his own shoulders. And if you can't see that this is love, then I can't show you love. God loved me when I was a rebel. Continues to give me grace from my disobedience. God does have a wrathful side. Revelation really leaves no doubt at all about the matter. The day is going to come when God will release the grapes of wrath. But it's only going to come after His love has been rejected by a world that prefers rebellion to grace. For now, for us today, this stands as a warning. This stands as something that is not yet, that is coming in the future. We are not in the age of God revealing His wrath. You want to know how blessed we are to live in this time, here and now? We are so blessed that we get to live in an age when God is revealing His love. We live today in the age of grace. Which means you and I are not called to be ambassadors of God's judgment, but ambassadors of the grace that is offered to all of rebellious mankind. God's justice is true. His wrath is certain, but it comes only after His love has been preached to the world, accepted by some, and hated by many. But for now, my brothers and sisters in Christ, let us preach that love. Let us preach that forgiveness. Let us preach that grace so no human being can say he is unaware that it exists. And let us live our lives in gratitude that His love has transformed us from a rebellious people and made us into His people. To God be all the glory forever and ever. Amen.